Erev Tov, everybody. Welcome to another edition of our Monday night class. Chodesh Tov, Rosh Chodesh Iyar. What a wonderful night, special night it is in the Jewish calendar. And we are continuing our studies of Perkei Avot during these auspicious weeks between Pesach and Shavuot. Tonight we are studying chapter 2, the second chapter of the Ethics of Our Fathers. And again, continuing our studies based on the book from Rabbi Tversky, Zechot Tzadik Livracha, Visions of Our Fathers, an amazing, incredible sefer that I recommend everyone to pick up if you have the opportunity. We are studying the sixth Mishnah of the second chapter. This Mishnah is authored by none other than Hillel Hazaken. Hillel, of course, Hillel and Shammai, one of the, the two famous, one of the most famous Tanaim that we have. And he is giving us very, very potent, relevant messages with regards to um, education and leadership in this Mishnah, Mishnah Vav. So for those looking inside, feel free to take a look. Second chapter, 6 Mishnah, this is what he says. Hu aya omer. This, so he was accustomed to say, En bur yerechet. A boar cannot be fearful. Velo amha'ares hasid. And an amha'aretz, which we will translate soon, cannot be pious. Velo habayshan lamed, a bashful person cannot learn. Velo hakapedan melamed, and a quick, impatient person cannot teach. Velo kol hamarbe bishora machim, and anyone who is excessively occupied in business cannot become a scholar. And finally, And in the place where there are no leaders, strive to be a leader. So let us begin with the opening statement. The term bur refers to a person who lacks essential Torah knowledge. The amha'aret, according to the Gemara, the Talmud, refers to a person who may have acquired Torah knowledge, but he hasn't been in contact with Torah scholars to build on that knowledge. A person who lacks the essential Torah knowledge, the boor, is often un, unable to avoid sinning because he doesn't know what is permitted and what is forbidden. For example, there may be this very holy woman, a devout woman on Shabbat, who would never in a million years think that she would violate any commandment on Shabbat. For sure, not a biblical one. And, and she will do her best not to transgress even a rabbinical commandment. But this woman might have accidentally dropped some food on her clothing, on her dress. And what does she do? She takes a cloth and she dips it into water and she then tries to remove the stain, clearly unaware that what she is doing was a violation of a scriptural prohibition of Delraita, because cleaning a stain is equivalent to laundering, which is one of the 39 melachot of Shabbat. A person who is knowledgeable in halacha would not, of course, be subject to that mistake. In fact, he'd probably considered to be a tzaddik. But to be on the level of a hasid is a level higher of that of a tzaddik. The Mishilat Yesharim, the Ramchal, says that to be a chassid requires several levels of perfection before you reach the status of a chassid. 
the tzaddik is guided by halacha. Everything he does is uh, complies with halacha. He follows the Shulchan Aruch. I look in Shulchan Aruch, I know what to do and I know what I cannot do. But the person who wishes to be a Hasid does more, and wishes to do more than what the halacha requires. Here, just the study of the Torah is not enough, says the, the, the Ramchal. And a person who uses his own judgment as to what he should do or what not, that's great for the level of a tzaddik, but not for a Hasid. Now it becomes necessary to have close ties with someone great, with a a, a prestigious Torah scholar, to be able to consult what he can and what he can't do to bring him to that high level. For example, a Hasid might want to take upon himself to fast, to for whatever reason, for repentance, for teshuvah, for sins that he's done. These fasts are not required by Shulchan Aruch. No one's telling you that you have to fast on uh, on the fifth day of uh, of Hashvan. But you decide you wanted to fast because you feel that you have uh, a stain that needs to be cleansed. You need to act in a form of repentance for something that you did. So the course of action to fast should only be approved by a person who you're near, who you're close to, a tzaddik in his own right, to a Torah authority that will approve such a thing. Because for some people, maybe fasting might be unproduct- counterproductive. It might impair your ability to study Torah and perform mitzvot. That's why it's so important that even though you might have the knowledge of Torah, but you may be considered amaaretz and take upon yourself things that are counterproductive. Rabbi Naftali of Rafshitz, Zechar Tzadik Libracha, one of the great uh, Hasidic masters in, uh, in Poland, earned himself a reputation for his intolerance of fools. He didn't like people that were fools. And uh, one time his student asked him, but Rebbe, the Gemara says that intelligence, intelligence is given or withheld. You can't blame the guy who's a fool. If he's a fool, it's not his fault. How can you fault a fool for his foolishness? So Naftali answered, I only have contempt for those fools who cannot be satisfied with the little foolishness they have. They keep on searching, how can I be more foolish? And I want to become the greatest fool in history. I want to pride myself on my foolishness. They're never satisfied with the level of foolishness that they've achieved and they desire to be a bigger and bigger fool. And the idea here in his opening statement of Hillel, the word bur actually translates and transliterates almost perfectly from Hebrew to English. It's a person who is empty of all social grace. He's devoid of common sense. And he possesses neither awareness of his deficiencies, nor does he possess any interest in bettering himself. And this person can never attain even the lowest level of righteousness. It's impossible because he doesn't care enough to consider his actions or to acquire a sensitivity to differentiate between what is right and what is wrong. That is a boor. Armisha is not talking about people who have limited intelligence. A person who is blessed very with, with, with simple chokhmah, nothing really great. Okay, he can still live his life as a decent citizen. That's fine. What makes him a boor is a person who fails to seek out and develop the innate ability that he has or talent in every human being to become somebody. It's like, an, it's like a field that is left fallow 
that is left unworked, unproductive. He exerts no effort to discover what life's about, to develop his potential, and he wastes his life away. He makes nothing of himself. He contributes nothing to the world, not even enabling himself to discern the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong. And the Ama'aretz, by contrast, the Ama'aretz could be a good person, he could be sincere, could be productive, could be a contributing member to society, maybe. But if he lacks the education himself, if he denies himself the study of the fundamental human values that is learned through Jewish tradition by joining yourself with a Tamil Chacham, someone to guide you on the right path, he will never achieve piety. He will never be pious. That is a level, like we said, that transcends that of Tzidkut. You don't have to become a scholar of, of great chokhmah, great distinction, but you have to commit yourself to a process of learning and bettering yourself continuously, constantly realizing that we always have more and more to learn and constantly evaluate our thoughts and our actions. That is the first statement of Hillel in this Mishnah. Then he goes on to say, Velo habayshan lamed, Velo hakapdan melamed. A bashful person cannot learn, and a quick, impatient person cannot teach. Every character trait, we've mentioned this before, may be constructive when put to good use, um, even when it may seem undesirable. It is commendable for a person to be modest. Um, then we have busha. Busha is is shyness, which is also a form of modesty, can be considered praiseworthy. However, there is a shyness, there is a trait of busha that when it's misguided, could be detrimental to a person. And the Mishnah here says, lamed, that shyness has the ability to interfere with a person's learning. And as a result, he remains in an ignorant state, unable to absorb important material. A person who is too shy to ask his teacher, or his rabbi, or his instructor, a clear explanation of what concept he's being taught, then he'll never grow. He'll never gain in knowledge. This often happens to people that have low self-esteem, who are defensive, they're cautious, they're afraid to say something stupid, so they would rather remain quiet. And although it's perfectly legitimate for a person to ask clarification questions, the person with a ego that is fragile, that is broken, he's going to hesitate to do so. And therefore, he's going to remain ignorant of important data. And this ignorance may lead him to choose things in life that are erroneous. The Gemara is never afraid to ask questions, inquiry questions, of simple questions. My Tama, what's the reason for this? I don't know. Please explain to me. Mr. Rabbi Gemara, Rabbi so-and-so, you said this law, you said this statement. I want to know, what are you talking about over here? I'm curious. I'm unsure. What are the circumstances of the case? There are so many times a Gemara clearly wants to know about the, the, the item. Not always is the Talmud asking an objection or contradicting. There are many times where that happens and there's a strong kusha. But many, many times it's just inquiring about the subject matter. It's part of life. And you can't be shy about it. If the scholars in the Talmud were ready to ask and open themselves because they want to know more, so why should we be any different? Experience is the most effective teacher, and we learn the best by 
correcting the mistakes that we make through experience. And um, in fact, the Gemara Masechet Gitin says that a person doesn't truly grasp a halacha until he has made a mistake in its interpretation and he's corrected. And we have to realize that failure is always a possibility. And yes, it's unpleasant. Yes, nobody wants it. Nobody wants to experience failure, but it should not be seen as as devastating. A person with low self-esteem, however, he feels that failure makes him inadequate, incompetent, unwill, uh, uh, unable to grow, and he may not venture to try new things and experiment with new ideas and new learnings, and that because it may result in failure. And this attitude, um, in, what, what ends up happening as a result, is that he remains in a stagnant life. He never advances beyond what is considered status quo. It's like uh, never the escalator never going up. It's just constantly like this. And this is the undesirable shyness that a person can have, which hampers a person's, uh, a person's growth. The kapdan... Veloa Kaptan Melamed could be described as the person or the teacher that demands perfection. And he's very, very short and quick to get angry with a person who is imperfect or, or exhibits any form of mistake. And this could be good if kept within boundaries. It may be constructive. No one's saying otherwise. When a person strives for perfection and he feels dissatisfied when he makes a mistake, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Strive for perfection. But when you're too meticulous or you become or you take it to an extreme as is with all other midot, it becomes destructive and can harm a person's growth, especially a student. You know, while there is, while being intolerant to imperfection does have its benefits, it's beneficial. But again, if taken to an extreme, it's harmful, especially when directed towards others. All the more so, when dealing with a teacher towards a student, an irascible teacher may, may stifle the child's desire to learn, to seek clarification on things. And as a result, he's unable now to transmit any learning from teacher to student because he's so upset with, with the student who's making the mistake. It's quite likely that this kapdan um, maybe he has low self-esteem. The teacher has low esteem, low self-esteem, because as the instructor, if the instructor has a fragile ego, then he can interpret the student's question of clarification as what I didn't explain it properly. You saying I'm incompetent? I'm not a good teacher, and therefore people with poor self-esteem are prone to interpret many things that lead to negative reflections on themselves, and that's and that's a problem. Uh, many of us grew up hearing the the line, the statement that there's no such thing as a as a stupid question. Probably heard that before. The wisdom of that statement actually gives us tremendous insight both on the learning and and the teaching. When you look at the shy person, the bashful person, one who's unwilling to admit when he doesn't know, you can't learn successfully. Hillel reminds us that. Learning is not something that is passive. To learn means to be an active participant, to be an active listener, to ask thoughtful questions, to raise objections, uh, suggest creative answers. 
A passive person who just wants his teacher to do the job of learning for him will never succeed as a student. And like we said, the teacher who cannot afford to lose patience, uh, 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 who, who, a teacher who finds himself losing patience with students, who may be a little bit slow to understand, either by giving them the answers or by rebuking them for not understanding it the first time, this is a problem. Shlomo HaMelech tells us, Teach every student according to his way. The patient teacher needs to find the way that his student will succeed. And everyone's got their own unique way of learning. Everyone's got their own way to absorb material. And it's up to the teacher to reach the person, the student's mind and the student's heart or he will keep on searching on his own and not reach, not find it. So it's the teacher who's got to make that happen. And as uncomfortable as this thought might make, might make us think, is that most teaching actually takes place in the house, in the home. And it's our job to create an atmosphere where our children actually feel that their questions are appreciated, where their questions are given careful consideration are thought-provoking and we've, we, we make them know that it's thought-provoking and our answers are answered thoughtfully and that's how parents teach their own children to become successful students. By raising children to become successful students then parents give them the best chance of growing into successful adults. So how do we answer our children when they ask us questions? Oh, that's just the way it is. Or you know the answer, but you're just too lazy to give them the proper answer. Answer them like you would an adult, but in a lower way. There's nothing wrong with that, with giving them a high-end answer in simple terms. But if you're a kapdan, if you're impatient, and you're not willing, then you can't be the lamed. You cannot be the teacher. And chances are you won't be able to direct your children in the proper path as well. The end of the Mishnah speaks about which is anyone who is excessively occupied in business cannot become a scholar. We occasionally see people, says Rabbi Tursky, who have this insatiable desire for wealth. Billionaires who just become bigger billionaires as, and, and they just seek wealth thinking that they're going to live for a thousand years. And they try to increase that immense wealth. And, and the way they go about it, you would think that they don't have food on their table. They don't know where, where the food's going to come from. The, the sad part about this is that society thinks of this as normal. They don't look at this as it's a problem. There's a story about a man who came to see a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist says, what's your problem? Why are you here? And the man says, I don't have any problems. So the doctor said, then why you come to seek my uh, consultation? What, what's the purpose of you here? So he told them, my family insisted that I come and see you. So the doctor said, well, what does your family think is, is wrong with you? Why are you here? So the man says, they think that there's something wrong with me because I like pancakes. So the psychiatrist says, that's absurd. There's nothing wrong with liking pancakes. This is why they sent you. I happen to like pancakes myself. So the patient heard this 
and his eyes lit up. He says, you love pancakes too? You have to come to my house. I have crates and crates full of them in my attic. So, cute little story. But making enough pancakes for one meal, I actually had pancakes today for lunch, but making enough pancakes for one meal, that's proper. Making a few extra and you want to store them in the freezer, also appropriate. But when one collects crates and crates of pancakes to put in his attic, obviously you're sick. This individual needs help. And we should have this same attitude towards the money accumulating for us, for our needs that we put away and put away and put away for a rainy day. There's nothing wrong with saving a little bit for a rainy day because rainy days do come. But if money becomes the end in itself, if one continues to amass more wealth, more than he can ever use, it's like as foolish as collecting pancakes in your attic. When food is eaten for nutrition, it's healthy. If you eat excessively beyond what the body needs, the food is serving now a different function. And then the food becomes like a drug for the overeater. Much the same, the irrational appetite that a person has for wealth. In all likelihood, money has come to represent security. That's what we tend to think of our money. And just like the overeater finds security in food, then the compulsive money hoarder finds security in the money, even though it cannot serve any realistic function. You, you, you are worth, there are people worth hundreds of billions of dollars. What can that possibly, what can you possibly do with that money? What security do you need? How much security can you possibly have? And this is the, again, generally probably a consequence of a person with low self-esteem. He doesn't really, he doesn't feel that he has enough. And then there's this endless pursuit for more and more food and more and more uh, money. Yes, society probably doesn't see the desire for excess money as similar to overeating. That is true. But the Gemara actually does see them as equivalent. Kol hamarbe bishora machim refers to anyone who exceeds the necessary exertion in commerce. And there's no question he's acting foolishly. How can you be a chacham? I, this is, you're, you're a total fool when you spend your hours and hours and hours of your day just eating or just seeking more and uh, more and more wealth. Last but not least, he says, Hillel, probably one of his most famous lines, This same individual, low self-esteem, which has been kind of the theme in this whole Mishnah, um, a low self-esteem may not allow a person to assume a position of leadership, except in the cases where he has to defend himself against feelings of inadequacy by, by pushing forward. Um, a truly humble person who has self-esteem intact, Remember, don't confuse the two. Just because you're humble doesn't mean you have a low self-esteem. A truly humble person who has his self-esteem will resist the call to become a leader at first. That's his humility kicking in. No, it's really not for me. I don't think I'm. Uh, I don't think I'm worth it or whatever. Maybe there's other people that are better. But then, when the call comes to become that leader, when there's no one around and everyone is looking at you, then they become the greatest leader of them all. And who better to prove this, who exemplified this than Moshe Rabbeinu, 
who was Vayish Moshe Anav Meod Mikol Adam, who initially resisted that call to become the leader, and then became the paragon of leaders. And we see this by many people. Shaul HaMelech, the first king, was a person who felt that he was inadequate, but eventually became a great king. If it wasn't for a couple of mistakes, yes, they were big mistakes, you know, he, you know, he would have he would have acquired a legacy probably a little bit better or more close to that of David and Shlomo. We see many of our of our prophets in the Shoftim, Gidon for one also, one who, who felt he wasn't worthy. But that that's just his humility. But when called upon, when the Navi comes and says, you're the next guy, you get up and you do it. And all of a sudden, um, you know, you, you, you come into control. You become the greatest leader. But a person like the guy, like the Baishan, the person who has a misguided shyness, a person who is... Um, who has such low self-esteem that he can't find, he can't take the reins and build something with his people around him, then those feelings of inadequacy will paralyze him. Hillel was another individual who had the humility and it was a healthy humility, but his self-esteem was intact. And that's why he was able to guide us in this Mishnah on some of the manifestations of low self-esteem and to build to build on that. However, I think maybe the main message of this last of this last statement by Hillel in a place where there are no leaders strive to become the leader might be something that is a little bit more prevalent in today's society. According to Jewish tradition, HaKadosh Baruch Hu dispatches a an angel, an emissary, heavenly emissary to teach Torah to every unborn child who is waiting in the mother's womb to come out. The, the great Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, told his students something unreal. He said, during the days prior to his own birth, his soul had studied together with another pure soul in preparation for that moment when they're going to be dispatched by Hashem into the physical world. And he said, my friend merited to live a life anonymously. No one knew who he was. I was condemned to fame. He used those words. I was condemned to fame. As if him becoming the great Baal Shem Tov was condemnable. And so Hillel concludes our Mishnah with one of the most famous fundamental expressions of Jewish philosophy, a warning that concerns the cost and the obligation that is imposed by being notorious. In today's culture, where people uh, revere Hollywood actors, sports stars, where political candidates fight to near death to win public office, where people will eagerly humiliate themselves before millions of people on television for a few moments of fame. Hillel's message strikes an unfamiliar chord in the modern era. But if we consider the humiliation heaped upon public figures, their loss of personal privacy, and the caricatures that they often become in the shadow of the public attention, 
now we begin to maybe appreciate what Hillel is saying, the wisdom that is implicit in Hillel's warning. The Torah recognizes the value of our private lives and reminds us that once we give away that privacy, then it's lost to us forever and can never come back. As bedazzling and as amazing that being a celebrity often seems, it carries with it a cost unlikely able to compensate us for the sacrifice of losing that privacy. And even when we believe that we can serve um, the common good, even where we may be in fact able to contribute to society by serving in a position of leadership, that price of fame ought to deter us from embarking down that path and convince us to leave those tasks to other people. It seems implicit from Hillel that it's don't lechatrila jump into that position. However, why? Because that's the price of fame. However, bimkom she'en anashim. However, if there is no one to indeed pick up that mantle of leadership, if no one is willing to fill a position or tackle a job, then not only are we encouraged to take that role, we are obligated to do our best and rise to the occasion. And that is the complexity of Hillel's message over here. Although we should never seek to place ourselves in the public eye, yet at the same time, neither are we free to hide from it when the public calls on us to help and to be that leader. Do not labor to attain a spot in the limelight where all the lights are shining down on you. Don't strive to be there. Why? Because the cost is great. But at the same time, you have to make the sacrifice, no matter what the cost is, even if it's going to mean a little bit of publicity, when other people need you. And that's something that is so important as uh, we go on in our society. It doesn't really matter in which age or era you live in, whereas the era of corona or the era of pre-corona or post-corona or or just life in general. There's going to be days where you're going to be called upon. There's going to be days where people are going to need your help and going to need your expertise and your leadership, your leadership and your ability to take control. And you cannot let thoughts of fame get in your way. If there's other people that can do it, fantastic. And let them continue. If they're doing a great job and give them the support that they need. But if you are the guy if you are the person that can lead the congregation as a, um, as a cantor or as a rabbi or as a teacher, if you, can, you, if you can produce something, if you can help your community because you are a carpenter or a plumber, rather than say, ah, give it to a next time, but they need you. They need your expertise. And right now, bimkom she'en anashim, yishadel liot ish. In the place where there is nobody, when there is anashim, you have to be that ish. But at the same time, you have to do it with humility. Don't seek the limelight. That's why the word ish is used. The ish Moshe anav me'od, as we mentioned. Whenever ish is used, it corresponds to humility. Be that person. Take that role of leadership. Make a difference in the world. 
let the kavod will come. Don't chase after the kavod. That's a different Mishnah. The kavod will come. It will follow you. It will follow you, but you can't chase it. You be that person. You make a difference. You change the world to a better place, for a better place. Bezrat Hashem HaKadosh Baruch Hu will shower you and your community with blessings. This is the message of Hillel. So much in such few words. Bezrat Hashem, we shall be able to absorb these these lessons, these lessons of not just remaining a boor of Amaaretz, but seeking to become more knowledgeable, seeking to attach ourselves to the Chachamim, not to become a Baishan or be a Baishan if we have low self-esteem, to find the courage in us to seek more and become more knowledgeable. And if we are the teacher, never to be impatient because the student is the lineage, it is the transmission of Torah from one to another. It is our job to transmit that Torah, to be as patient as possible. And lastly, and lastly, whatever it is that we are trying to attain, be responsible about it. Don't overdo it. Don't overdo it. Especially when it comes to forms of leadership. Be that person. Attract the limelight. But just as a result, don't seek it. Wonderful potent messages for every Jew on earth. Wishing everyone a wonderful night. Be well.